1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Elizabeth Perry about her new book, An Yuan, Mining China's Revolutionary Tradition, and that was published in 2012 with the University of California Press. This is a book that looks at the ways that revolutionary projects, revolutionary authority were translated, disseminated, and propagated in the context of 20th century Chinese history, focusing in particular on the significance of Anyuan, which is a coal mining town in both the the period of the emergence of communist revolution in China, and then the period in which the early stages of communist revolution were reappropriated, translated, and adapted to in, in various different ways and different kinds of stories and histories over the course of the remainder of the 20th century, and even to today. It's an amazing book, and I'm not being hyperbolic there. There's a really striking way that Liz managed to both create a really carefully developed and very clearly articulated argument throughout the book, while at the same time telling a really wonderful story. The narrative skill and the narrative craft of this book is impeccable she takes your hand as a reader and leads you through every step of the story that you need to understand in order to really fully grasp the aspects of her argument and how the changes that she is describing and articulating in the book came to be and why they came to be. It's a really wonderful use of sources. It's an extraordinarily compelling story, and it's just a really amazingly impressive book. It was wonderful to talk with Liz about it, and um, she's just very articulate about the entire book and the process of coming to the topic and um, as you'll see in the ensuing conversation. And I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Elizabeth Perry about her new book, An Yuan, Mining China's Revolutionary Tradition. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Liz, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me.
1: My pleasure. So could you start us off by saying a little bit about um, a question that's Really, really huge, but please feel free to come at this in whatever way you want. What brought you to the study of China and to the uh, political and social history of modern China, um, specifically in the first place? Actually, I think for me,
0: it's a pretty easy answer. I was brought to it because I was born in China. My parents had been teaching for about 20 years at St. John's University in Shanghai. Um, But rather than growing up in China, as I otherwise might have, uh, our family uh, ended up Having to leave China only a few months after I was born because of the Chinese Revolution. So I grew up in Japan instead and was always fascinated by the Chinese Revolution, which had caused such a major change in my family's life. So I think um, my interest in China, in the Chinese Revolution, really came uh, from the circumstances of my birth. But then uh, I was in college at the time you. Okay of major anti-war protests in this country, and I was very active politically in the anti-war movement uh, against the United States' involvement in Vietnam. And I think, like most people around my age who are in Chinese studies, that fascination with the Chinese Revolution, uh, which came naturally to those who were interested in opposing the war in Vietnam, which uh, many of us saw as opposition to the Vietnamese revolution um, was, uh, was quite common. So uh, it's both a matter of birth, I think, and then a matter of uh, the political activities that I engaged in as a college student and uh, a graduate student that drew me quite naturally to the study of modern China and the Chinese revolution in particular.
1: Now, in the acknowledgements of the book that we're talking about today, you mentioned a conversation with a colleague over dinner that inspired what eventually became the, the book and the research process that led into your creating this book and focusing on this topic. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how you came to focus on NUN in particular and perhaps situate this within the larger trajectory of your work more broadly?
0: I would certainly never have written this book had it not been for my colleague in Beijing, Professor Yu Jianrong of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Um, as I note in the preface, uh, I had invited uh, Dr. Yu to Harvard uh, in because I had read a couple of amazing essays that he had written about present protest in Hunan. He's from Hunan himself in uh, the late 1990s. uh, And um, he related those peasant protests to the revolutionary tradition of the Hunan peasants. And I was so struck that there was an academic courageous enough to draw these links between contemporary protest and the protest that led to the Chinese Communist Revolution that I invited him here. He gave a riveting talk about contemporary protest in China. And then over dinner afterwards, when um, we were relaxing, he said to me, do you know why I came to Harvard? And I Said uh, jocularly, of course I do. I invited you here to give this wonderful talk. And he said, No, I came because I want to invite you to visit the Anyuan coal mine. He had already been conducting research at Anyuan for about six years, I believe, but he told me he hadn't really been able to write a word. Yet, and uh, he wondered if I would join him in a collaborative uh, project. Initially, I was very reluctant to do that. I was working on another book on militias and uh, the Chinese revolution. And I told him I just could not contemplate doing anything more. But after he returned to China, a few months later, he sent me an email saying that he had already made all the arrangements for my forthcoming visit to Anyan. And so I felt I couldn't uh, refuse his very generous offer. And when I got uh, to the Anyan coal mine that summer, I uh, was really struck with how fascinating a place it really was. It had everything that Professor Yu had uh, promised that it would have, um, both peasants and workers, uh, both leaders uh, and followers, uh, both a very vibrant uh, tradition of pre-communist rural rebellion. And then it was the major center of the communist labor movement for three years in the 1920s. Uh, so once I got there, I realized that in fact, Anyuan did fit very centrally into the interests that um, had motivated so much of my writing throughout my career. I've been equally interested in rural protest and in urban protest, in peasants and in workers, and uh, in pre-communist uh, protest and in the revolution and its consequences. And all of this uh, seemed to be encapsulated there in Anyuan. So uh, thanks to Professor Yu, who accompanied me on several uh, memorable. Trips together to Anyan and who helped me uh, secure very valuable documentary and archival resources, and who also explained uh, many issues to me that uh, I found rather opaque. Um, I was able to write this book. But a second um, Chinese scholar was also particularly helpful to me uh, here, and that was Professor Tsai uh, Shaoqing of the Nanjing University History Department. Um, Professor Tsai has retired, retired several years ago, but he was my primary mentor in 1979-80 when I spent a year at Nanjing University as part of the first exchange, academic exchange between the U.S. and China. I spent a year at. And working on the Taiping uh, revolutionary or rebe- rebellious movement, depending on how you categorize it, and the relationship between the Taipings and secret societies. And during that year, uh, Professor Tsai, on a number of occasions, um, uh, related to me his uh, trips to Anyuan in the late 1950s when he had gone there to interview miners about their revolutionary tradition. And Professor Tsai had also interviewed um, the early leader of the Communist Party, Li Li San. Back in Beijing, and talk to him about his own experiences at Anyuan, and so, as I was at Anyuan, these conversations with Professor Tsai of several uh, decades earlier began to flood back uh, into my memory, and it was a great pleasure, together with Professor Yu, to uh, to go to uh, Nanjing to introduce uh, the two of them to each other, and with Professor Yu to be able to ask um, Professor Tsai um, for his perspective. Uh, perspective. Perspective, which dated back to Anyuan in the 1950s. So, in many ways, this um, book uh, reflects uh, the uh, wonderful opportunities that we all have now to collaborate with Chinese scholars, something that was, of course. Unavailable when I first entered the China field.
1: And there's actually, um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, there's a really wonderful description, and account, and analysis in one of the last chapters of the book of (laughs) Professor Yu's own work um, on Anyuan, and um, in in particular on workers, I believe, um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, in Anyuan. And it's really, um, it's one of the really wonderful things about the last part of the book is um, is the way that you're opening us up to contemporary strands of China any scholarship on the same topics.
0: Yes, Professor Yu did write his own book on Anyuan, on the workers of Anyuan, using them as a kind of symbol for the plight of the contemporary Chinese working class. Um, His book is a magnificent book, uh, quite different from my own. Um, It doesn't have the same kind of um, historical emphasis that mine does. His is much more contemporary, ethnographic, and has uh, much more in the way of color of uh, the way in which contemporary workers in an Yuan speak about their own experiences. He did um, very detailed and very lively interviews with a range of ordinary miners, uh, local cadres, and so on in Anyuan and in their own words, lets them uh, allows them to speak about how they see the contemporary situation. And Professor Yu's book. Um, has been published only in Hong Kong. It was to have been published in the PRC in a simplified character version, Um, but then uh, the Department of Propaganda pulled the plug on that just before the book was to be sold in the PRC. So although it's very well known by PRC scholars who have access often to the Hong Kong edition or to snippets of it over the Internet, uh, it is not um, permitted, very unfortunately, within mainland China.
1: Now, as, as we move into the body of the book, the um, you frame in the introduction a set of questions that are going to motivate what comes later. And these questions are ones that you lay out for us, I think, really clearly at the beginning. These include, what explains the very particular trajectory of Chinese communist revolutionary effort? How and why did Chinese patterns diverge so dramatically from Russian ones on which they were based? And what meanings does the revolutionary tradition hold for Chinese citizens today? And to those I'd add also, how can we situate these questions within An Yuan as a place and within its local, national, and global histories? And one of the things that comes out of this history, I think, so trenchantly and so really beautifully is an attention to different modes of historiography and different ways that um, these same events have been historicized and uh, told and retold by various different groups to serve various different purposes. Um, so it's a really, really nice account of uh, sort of comparative historiography in a way, in addition to the larger historical account that it's telling itself. Now, in starting to answer these questions, we see a number of factors playing major roles here, and this brings me to um, a question I'll ask you in a moment. These, um, how did the communists get ordinary Chinese? Is one of the sort of major questions here to understand, to accept, and even embrace the authority of of the revolution, to embrace revolutionary authority. And your argument that's going to structure the book and thread through the entire book is going to hinge on the importance of what you call the strategic deployment of a range of symbolic and cultural resources for the purpose of political persuasion. And these include religious, um, ritual, rhetoric, dress-related, drama, artistic, etc., etc. kinds of cultural resources. Can you speak a little bit to how you came to focus on um, sort of cultural resources and these kinds of symbolic resources, in particular, as the the really the way into starting to answer these major questions? And for you, how are you thinking of culture um, in the context of this book as a as a concept, as a motivating um, sort of uh, structure?
0: Uh, Well, when I began this research, that was not at all the framework that I had in mind. When Professor Yu approached me about doing uh, some collaborative research. He said he had read my earlier work on the Shanghai labor movement, which is much more a work of political economy than this Anyuan book. And um, he had been trying to fit um, the Anyuan story into the framework that I had developed in my Shanghai book. And it didn't quite fit for him. And so he wanted me <laughs> to kind of squeeze it into that framework for him. And I told him there was probably a, a reason. That it didn't fit, um, that Anyuan and Shanghai were in fact quite different places, and that maybe we needed a rather different approach to understanding the situation in Anyuan. And I also told him the only thing I could really remember about Anyuan at that point when I first engaged in this work was the very famous um, oil painting.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: of Chairman Mao going to Anyan that was painted during the Cultural Revolution by a young Red Guard artist and that I knew had um, been a kind of central prop in the Mao cult of the Cultural Revolution and its immediate aftermath. And so always in my mind when I went to Anyan was on the one hand this very famous painting of it, um, but on the other hand um, a sense that, you know, perhaps uh, the framework that I had used used for understanding the Shanghai labor movement wouldn't be the most appropriate one for making sense of this story. But I certainly didn't begin with uh, a determination to have a kind of cultural framework for understanding what had happened at Anyuan. It was really, as I read more and more about what the young communists had done there in order to mobilize workers, and in particular what the young Lili San had done at Anyuan, that it became increasingly clear to me that, um, an emphasis on the use of cultural materials, um, both elite cultural materials and popular cultural materials, <coughs> was um, critical to Lili-san's success. Lili-san came from just across the border from Anyan, from a county in Hunan. He was intimately familiar with uh, the folk practices as well as the elite conventions of that area. His own father was uh, a Confucian degree holder and a school teacher. and his own father um, made connections for Li san with the elite uh, in Anyan, so that when Li Lisan went there, he had a personal introduction to the magistrate and the head of the Chamber of Commerce, and he used his own training in classical Chinese to write in lovely calligraphy and in fluid um, literary Chinese, a petition seeking the support of the magistrate for his um, plan to open a school to educate the workers. Um, I then, as I read more about what Lili San did, um, realized how inventive he was in using not only this kind of elite Mandarin culture, um, and he and Mao also, it might be noted, wore their long scholar's gowns when they first arrived at... Uh, An Yuan, um, making clear to the workers that they were educated intellectuals and deserving of that kind of respect. But Li San also um, very quickly got to know the members of the so-called Red Gang, the Hongbang, a branch of the Triad Secret Society that was active there at An Yuan. He recruited uh, Triad members uh, to his new movement. Um, He learned from them the code words of uh, the Red Gang secret society, and uh, he enlisted the support of the Red Gang chieftain in that area for the strike uh, before he called it. When Lili San was recruiting workers to his new so-called labor, um, well, it was really a trade union, a labor union, but it was a so-called workers recreation uh, club. Use used that euphemistic title. But he did so using many of the conventions of folk festivals and folk religion in that area. So he um, paraded a palanquin through the streets of Anjan, much as was used in temple festivals, but on this particular occasion he put inside the palanquin not a statue of local um, temple gods, local deities, as was the norm. Instead he put in there a statue of Karl Marx, um, which you can see if you go to the Anyuan Museum, that uh, little bronze bust of Marx is still on display there. Um, So he did uh, a number of things that took advantage of his understanding of uh, the connection between culture and uh, power, if you will, that was very creative. And the more I read about his activities, the more I realized that this really had to be a central part of the story. It was something I didn't feel entirely comfortable with um, at first because, as I say, my own work for the most part has been more oriented toward um, ecological issues, issues of political economy and so forth. And this was more of an excursion into the symbolic and the cultural than I had uh, previously dared uh, to, uh, to conduct.
1: Now, um, Lili San is someone who is very important to this story in many ways, both for his visibility in parts of the book and also for later on his invisibility in parts of the story, and so we'll definitely be talking more about him. Now, the book itself, um, as we move further into it, it's structurally set up in um, what we can consider to be two parts. The first four chapters look at and explore the role of this cultural positioning that we've been talking about In revolutionary mobilization in Anyuan. The last three chapters really look at the the power of cultural patronage as different groups in different places and for different reasons appropriated translated reinterpreted this complex heritage and history of Anyuan. now there's as much this is really a striking way to approach the book there's as much attention paid here to the recovery and reinvention of this An Yuen tradition as there is to the initial revolutionary period itself so can you say a bit about that decision how did you come to to decide to Um, to approach it this way, both narratively and structurally?
0: Well, I guess the explanation for that two-part structure is um, in part, I was very interested in trying to figure out what had actually happened at Anyan because, having um, known very little about the place initially except for that famous oil painting, um, I wanted to figure out what the history was behind that um, religious icon of the Cultural Revolution. So that sent me back to I knew that during the Cultural Revolution, this Anyan painting had been used as. Criticism of Liu Shaoqi—that there had been criticism of uh, uh, the uh, vice chairman of the Communist Party, Mao's rival, if you will, but his number two person—that there had been criticism of Liu for his activities at Anyuan, and that this painting had played a role in that, and. Um, so I wanted to figure out what the true story was behind that. What Mao had actually done at Anyuan, what Liu Shaoqi had actually done at Anyuan. I didn't initially, except for the stories I had heard from Professor Tsai in Nanjing, know very much at all about Li Li San's involvement in Anyuan. But I figured I first needed to try to piece together as best I could what seemed to me to be a plausible and honest history of the early communist movement at And once I had done that, that I would be in a much better position to evaluate why this oil painting had been done, why it had been um, so important in the Cultural Revolution, why everybody who had been of Red Guard age was immediately familiar um, with this um, image and knew that it was uh, a cultural representation of Mao's attack on Liu Shaoqi. So it, it, those were the kinds of things that uh, made me from the outset realize that I wanted this to be a book that had a long historical sweep. Actually, most of my work um, has been of this sort. Um, most of the books I've written begin in the late imperial period and go at least to the beginnings of the communist period, um, but increasingly right down to the present, since I think um, – as I look at these topics more and more, the continuities from uh, earlier times down to the present strike me as as more and more significant and more and more worth um, pursuing. But one of the things that I ended up concluding from this study, which I really hadn't um, anticipated from the beginning, was the extent. To which all this manipulation, if you will, of history and so on has actually redounded to the um, benefit, I think, of um, the resilience of Chinese communism. Initially, I had thought that, well, looking at the Anyan story will just expose how much um, deception uh, and um, manipulation and so forth there was once cultural positioning was supplanted by cultural patronage. And to some extent, that's a major theme in this book. But also important, I have felt, is that over time, as the Chinese uh, Communist Party, as the central department of propaganda, has um, had more and more experience in uh, its activities. That the reworking of historical material by the propaganda department has helped to turn what really was, in many respects, an alien. Revolution that was imported from the Soviet Union, that ideologically and organizationally was very unfamiliar to China, has helped to make that tradition somehow feel as though it was distinctively Chinese. And what studying An Yuan helped me appreciate was how much, on the one hand, had actually been um, copied from the Soviet Union. An Yuan was known uh, from 19. 19- to 1925 as China's little Moscow. It was the place where all kinds of things, from the architecture of the Bolshoi Grand Theater um, to the organization of a kind of Soviet-style regime, were copied directly uh from the Soviet Union. Liu Shaoqi, who was at that time in charge of Anyan, had um, had uh, a long period of study in the Soviet Union and was trying to implement those ideas within um, China. So on the one hand, objectively, both the ideology and the institutions were very Soviet. And yet, um, from the beginning of the revolution, there was among those leaders who were very clever and who understood what um, is involved in mobilizing people and in capturing their emotional intention, there was an, a recognition that these very new things had to be presented in a way that made them feel, smell, taste Chinese. Um, Li San, I think, was a master of that. Um, uh, Mao was pretty good at that himself. Liu <laughs> uh, Shaoqi, I think, was much less skilled at it, but still was doing his best. And right down to the present, we see this in the activities of the Chinese Propaganda Department and the way in which uh, it put on an international Olympics or the way in which it sells its Confucius Institutes abroad um, such that in China today, I think most people think of their revolution as being really very Chinese. It has its revolutionary tradition, has all kinds of problems. Um, they'll be happy to acknowledge that there is a kind of <sighs> Um, what they call emperor worship, uh, in the way in which the system is structured, that there is nepotism, there is corruption, and so on. But these things are thought of as very Chinese, rather than an alien Soviet system that was somehow implanted and imposed on China. And I think the result of that has been that the Chinese Communist Party is able to present itself as uh, a nationalist institution uh, to its own people, Um, in a way, uh, ironically, perhaps, that uh, in the Soviet Union, their own uh, Communist Party could not so easily do, since the Soviet Union was an amalgam of all sorts of different nationalities, um, and it was very difficult um, to present uh, their Communist Party as, on the one hand, Russian, and then on the other hand, Soviet. In China, this has been um, somewhat less problematic, Since although there are plenty of national minorities in China, they're a much smaller percentage of the population. Um, But the real credit for this, I think, goes not to the demographic distribution of China, but um, to the um, capabilities of a number of communist leaders in China from the very beginning of the party uh, down to the present. We saw this in Deng Xiaoping's decision to uh, talk about the reforms in China as a Chinese uh, type of socialism, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Deng Xiaoping's decision not uh, to overtly deny the Maoist heritage or the revolution, but instead to embrace it as another example of the unification and the strengthening of China, and then to move away from much of that revolutionary tradition, but yet to. Uh, Uh, present it as though it's connected with it. Um, These, I think, uh, are are really very skillful acts on the part of the Chinese communist leadership. And although they're introducing ideas and institutions that in many ways are foreign, are Western, are Soviet, are alien, um, they've done so in a way that um, understands the importance of cultural power and understanding that is, of course, um, central to... Chinese notions of, um, <clears throat> Political control and has been for a very long period of, of time.
1: Now, one of the things that the the early part of the book demonstrates really well is the way in which early and young communist leaders were able to take advantage of and mobilize potential vehicles for um, mobilizing for their own purposes that already existed in some form in this region in Anyuan in particular. So, after you, you've already said a little bit about Anyuan um, as a place, kind of what made it so important. For the purpose of this study. You've also mentioned um, local secret societies and that the kind of triad groups, the Elder Brother Society being the one that's really um, very important in this first part of the book, they become the main, well, most of the NUN minors belong to this Elder Brother society, and the society becomes the main instigator of rebellion and collective violence in the region. Now, what happens is um, sort of a uh, young Chinese intellectuals are able to take that um, as raw material and transform that into a vehicle for shaping society in their own ways and for redirecting that energy and redirecting their vi- uh, that violence to different, or in different kinds of ways. You, you describe that one of the ways that made these efforts so successful was an emphasis on the special status of literati, and their activities in Chinese society, the the emphasis on perhaps the wen part of the wen-wu dyad. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that recurs at several points um, along this story. Yes. um, You know... (sighs) We don't have too
0: many um, cultural explanations, if you will, of the Chinese Revolution. When we do, um, those explanations, uh, a la Lucian Pai or Dick Solomon... Tend uh, to suggest that there was something, a kind of authoritarianism, if you will, built into Chinese uh, traditional culture that helped to facilitate um, communist authoritarianism. Um, But, um, and and then part of the reason that we don't have too many cultural explanations is that most people, for good reason, have seen the communists as quite hostile to. traditional Chinese culture, since actually official communist policy was um, uh, to um, deny so-called feudal superstition and feudal remnants to deny the validity of folk religion, folk, folk culture, and so forth. So that although it was used instrumentally, um, it was not officially uh, endorsed. But um, uh, there have been uh, a few uh, uh, treatments of Mao's own interest in, um, in folk culture, in the rebellious tradition of the Taipings and so on. But there has been very little um, serious attention, I think, to the way in which the early communist leaders were able to use the fact that almost all of them were very well-educated intellectuals Who commanded a great deal of respect among ordinary people precisely because of their literati. Status, um, and so I think it is no accident that Mao, when he first went to Anyuan, went um, as a school teacher. Of course, that wasn't a guise; he was in fact a school teacher in Changsha at the time. So it was quite normal for him to be wearing his Mandarin gown when he first appeared at Anyan. The same with um, Li Lisan, who had been. Educated in the Confucian tradition and taught for a few years as a school teacher in his home county of Liling before he went off to France for higher education. And um, these individuals, I think, understood that the Confucian teacher. Uh, commanded a great deal of respect among ordinary people in Chinese society, most of whom had a tremendous thirst for education themselves and um, a great admiration and respect uh, for uh, literary education. So the ability of these early communist uh, cadres to use that literati tradition both to present themselves as less than threatening to the local elite and thereby gain some space from the local elite for their activities and also um, to uh, convince local people that um, they were... uh, In a kind of benevolent position, trying to help them, trying to share this um, wonderful literacy with them, um, gave them an entree that I think was really very special. And although in the Soviet Union you also have this early mobilizing strategy of setting up schools for workers, the Bolsheviks also were interested in in doing that. Um, The readings I have done, which are not complete by any means, but the readings I have done on the Russian Revolution suggest to me that that same strategy was um, far less successful in Russia than was true in China, in part because in Russia, as I understand it at least, there was just not the same um, thirst for literacy or respect uh, for the intelligentsia or the local school teacher that there was in rural China. I think the communists understood this and um, they took advantage of it. Um, but I don't mean for that to sound simply instrumental or callous or conniving on their part. Um, they w- were obviously anxious to provide education to the workers and to the peasants so that they could be politicized, so that they could uh, engage in this revolution and what they thought was going to win them a better a better life. So I certainly don't mean to suggest that this deployment of Confucian as well as folk culture um, Uh, was simply calculated um, and uh, was not something that uh, in many respects was quite natural or second nature or even subconscious to these leaders. I think it was a combination of, uh, of conscious deliberation and a subconscious engagement involvement in both elite and popular culture from their local area that allowed them to do this. It was no coincidence, I think, that Lili San um, came, as I said, from right across the border from An Mao came from just a bit further away in Hunan, in Xiangtan, from which also um, many of the coal miners came. Um, Liu Shaoqi came from further away in Hunan, and actually very few of the miners came from the county where Liu Shaoqi Hailed from, and that may, along with their very different personalities, also help to explain why Lili san seemed to be so. Particularly gifted at communicating with the local miners, uh, Mao um, maybe a little bit less so, but also um, very impressively so, and Liu Shaoqi perhaps um, somewhat less so than than the other two.
1: Now, in September 1922, Mao Zedong, uh, Liu Shaoqi, and Li Lisan organized together the launching of a successful nonviolent strike at Anyuan that became one of the early milestones of the um, Chinese communist revolution, after successfully concluding the strike, and again, you, I think you describe this as a five-day-long strike of 13,000 miners and railway workers that was that resulted in a victory without property damage, without personal injury, and this became um, a real milestone here. After that strike is successfully concluded, An Yuen becomes a national center for communist organizing for the next three years, and we see here um, a change in leadership and, we see the emergence of a very different model of leadership in Liu Xiaoqi. You've already alluded to this, um, but can you talk a little bit about this, about Liu Xiaoqi's model in particular, um, and in particular his approach toward um, some of the, um, the ways of making the Anyuan Workers' Club into this educational and sort of cultural uh, vehicle and set of technologies that become so important to what happens um, later on?
0: Yes, um, Liu Shaoqi, as you mentioned, was in charge of Anyan for the p- better part of three years right after the strike. He was sent by Mao to Anyan just a couple of days before the strike was called, in part because Mao feared that Lili San's very freewheeling, charismatic, uh, colorful. Uh, mode of mobilizing the workers, uh, successful as it had been in winning um, both the elite and the mining force um, to his side, could prove to be a real liability in the time of a strike when it was very important to maintain Uh, to keep a lid on the potential for violence. As you mentioned, this was an area where secret societies, the Elder Brothers Society, the Red Gang Triads, um, were largely in command, and um, Mao, in particular, was very worried for the potential that these gangsters, if you will, would explode in violence uh, once the strike was called, and so Mao sent Liu Shaoqi, who already had a reputation, having just returned from the Soviet Union, a reputation for being a highly disciplined Leninist-style cadre, sent him to Anyan to um, kind of ride herd over Li Lisan and make sure that uh, this strike was well-disciplined, well-controlled. And... Um, the, the strike was, uh, as you mentioned, conducted with no bloodshed, with virtually zero property damage, and yet one major gains for the workers after only five days off the job. The entire uh, workforce of some 13,000 workers, this was part of the largest industrial complex in China at the time, the Han Yiping Company, so really quite a phenomenal achievement to have all these workers out on strike. And they did so without violence. Shortly after the conclusion of the strike, Li san was sent off to Wuhan and then from there to Shanghai to carry the lessons that he had learned, uh, the techniques that he had pioneered at Anyan to these other Chinese industrial centers and Liu Shaoqi remained at Anyan as the person in charge of the workers' club. Um, while there, he presided over a workers' club that became um a hub of cultural activities for the Chinese labor movement at that workers' club, new style dramas operas um, films uh all kinds of things uh were Initiated, experimented with, taken from Anyuan out into the countryside, and performed um, before peasants and villages in order to mobilize them to the communist uh, movement. Seven schools uh, controlled by the communists to educate workers and their children were opened up uh, in the Greater Anyuan area. This workers' club, which had first been founded by San was rebuilt uh, in a style that Liu Shaoqi claimed uh, replicated the Bolshoi Grand Theater in Moscow, although to me, having (laughs) spent a lot of time in it and looking at it, it looks far more Chinese uh, than it does Russian, but in any case, um, in... Leo Shaochi's mind, what he was trying to do was to replicate at Anyan much of what he saw as the successful recipe of agit prop of agitation propaganda that uh, Lenin had advocated in the Russian Revolution and uh, um, had been developed in the early um, Soviet Union. But it had very much a Chinese twist uh, to it. In particular, there were costume lectures um, for which I found no direct parallel in the Russian tradition, but seemed to have been very much influenced by uh, Chinese traditions of local opera. This area of Jiangxi is um, famous uh, for uh, a kind of, it's called tea-picking cha-cai cheat, that um, uh, tea picking opera that was also used as the kind of um, uh, formula for a number of new dramas, new new um, operas with a revolutionary content. So during these three years, Yuan became a hub for this cultural experimentation, which was then taken from Anyuan to the Jiangxi. Soviet uh, in the early 1930s as the center of the communist movement moved uh, east uh, across Jiangxi province and then was taken with the communists in their famous Red Theater as they moved up to Yan'an and uh, to the various base areas during the wartime period. So these cultural experimentations were very important, um, but it's quite striking when you look at the interviews of workers that were done after this period, um, the workers who knew both Lili-san and Liu Shaoqi remember Lili-san so much more warmly, so much more fondly, because he obviously, his personality, his um, close knowledge uh, of the area, viewed as a kind of local son, his, um, his personal warmth, um, his willingness to kind of set uh, precedent and tradition aside, to get very close to the workers, all of that came through in a way that Liu Shaoqi is more disciplined, more... Leninist uh, kind of approach uh, did not. So Liu Shaqian, on the one hand, was really quite successful in presiding over An in this critical period when much of the Chinese labor movement elsewhere in China was um, being closed down, was being suppressed uh, by warlord opposition. Um, but at the other, on the other hand, he doesn't seem to have elicited the same kind of uh, warm response from the workers that his predecessor, Li Lisan, did. Um, and so Liu Shaqi is a kind of uh, interesting sort of uh, intermediate figure here who is very anxious to introduce Soviet ways into China. In many ways, in his essays, he talks about um, how unhappy he is that he has to actually compromise these Soviet precedents in order to really make them suitable for uh, the Chinese situation in a way that Li san seemed to have celebrated, Liu Shaoqi seems to uh, apologize for, but Liu Shaoqi is there um, uh, also translating these Russian ideas into um, a form of cultural activity that will seem familiar and appealing to the workers.
1: Thank you so much. Now, as we move into um, the latter part of the book, we see the workers' club and the associated movement eventually being attacked and not recovering. And this is connected, as you show, especially in the fourth chapter, to a transformation of the communist revolution in China from a proletarian to a peasant movement. Concomitant with this transformation is also a movement from what had been Um, as we sort of talked about in the context of the strike, a movement that was largely characterized by discipline, um, by restraint, into a much more violent situation. And you talk in this chapter about um, the emergence of the Red Terror, the um, the escalation of violence feeding into a wider militarization of the countryside and the birth of the Red Army. And again, NUN remains really central to this because a lot of the former NUN workers um, became propagandists and became leaders in this context of the Red Army for which cultural propaganda, as you're showing here, is such a central uh, technology and is such a central medium. As we um, move past this into what happens later, we see the emergence of, and we've sort of alluded to this before, Liu Xiaoqi um, being elevated into a revolutionary leader. And so even though we've been focusing a little bit on how important Li Li San was, Liu Xiaoqi actually gets built up as a leader and then gets taken back down again. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this leads us into the the second half of this book where um, we see the story of An Yuan as a revolutionary Center being taken up um, in very different ways over time, and in that process, very different leaders um, emerging as figureheads and cultural figureheads in particular for that um, for that period.
0: Yes. Uh... That's right. Um, after the establishment of the PRC in uh, the fall of 1949, Mao was chair of the Chinese Communist Party, and Liu Shaoqi was vice chair of the party. Liu Shaoqi, at that time, was being groomed as Mao's successor, and this became even more the case in the late 1950s, early 1960s, in the aftermath of the terrible famine Uh, occasioned by the Great Leap Forward, Um, Mao uh, stepped back from the front line of policy making. Liu Shaoqi became uh, the more, um, uh, well, at least the more public leader in that period as he was being um, groomed uh, to be Mao's uh, successor. As part of that effort uh, to build up the leadership credentials of Liu Shaoqi, there was uh, a major propaganda um, um, <clears throat> campaign, if you will, um, to uh, burnish Liu Shaoqi's uh, credentials as a proletarian leader. And in this period, then, the history of Anyuan became very important uh, as the political capital of Liu Shaoqi, showing that he had been uh, a major leader of the labor movement of the proletariat from the early 1920s on. The implication then was that Mao was the leader of the peasant movement. Of course, the peasant was the major social basis of the Chinese Communist Revolution, but nevertheless, the proletariat really, in Marx's theory, is the um, vanguard and um, is a more advanced political class than the peasantry. And so Liu Shaoqi, by showing himself to have been the leader of the proletariat with uh, a major oil painting um, showing his activities at An Yuan completed in the early 1960s, and put in the new Museum of the Revolution with a uh, sort of novelistic, part fictional, part um, factual account of Liu Oshachi's activities at Anyuan called Red Anyuan, published around this same time. The essays that Liu Oshachi had written. While at Anyan, republished, but also republished with some crucial phrases that now seemed a little embarrassing to him, um, excised from those materials. With new dramas, operas, and so on produced, and a new movie. Produced that showed uh, Liu Shaoqi as the hero of Anyuan. All of this was an effort um, to promote uh, Liu Shaoqi at the expense of Li Li San. In fact, many of the things for which Li Li San deserved full credit—organizing uh, the strike, coming up with the slogan for the strike, being the first uh, to set up a school for workers at Anyuan, being the first to organize uh, a labor movement at Anyuan, and so on—all of those things now. Um, were credited uh, to Liu Shaoqi. So there was uh, a propaganda blitz uh, in the late 50s, early 60s to build up the image of Liu Shaoqi, and the history of An Yuan was central um, to that effort. Um, this was um, a period in which uh, Li Lisan was under a cloud. Li Lisan uh, had been banished uh, to the Soviet Union for about 15 years before the establishment of the PRC. He had been brought back uh, to China from the Soviet Union just before uh, the communists uh, successfully established the People's Republic because at that earlier period it had been recognized that Lili San was in fact uh, the leader who was best equipped to handle the uh, the workers. Uh, this was a communist party that was now marching out of the countryside and into occupied cities, and they realized they needed cadres with expertise uh, in the industrial workforce. And so Lili-san was brought back from uh, the Soviet Union at that period of time. He was made the first minister of labor and the effective head of the trade union in the early PRC. But when Lili-san, just as he had at Anyan and Wuhan and Shanghai, began to advocate uh, in the early PRC for workers' rights. Um, He was then criticized uh, by the leadership, including Liu Shaoqi himself, for having been economistic, syndicalistic, for having promoted uh, workers' rights at the expense of Leninist party control. And so, um, Li Li Li-san was um, relieved of his posts, both with the trade union and with uh, the labor ministry and um, basically was under a cloud from 1951, uh, well, even 1950, but certainly 51 and then into 52 on, um, allowing uh, space for the supporters of Liu Shaoqi to rewrite the history of An Yuan in a way that almost entirely erased Li San's contributions and gave Liu Shaoqi Credit for everything, including uh, credit for things that Mao Zedong himself had done at Anyuan, which then became a point of contention during the Cultural Revolution when Liu Shaqi was criticized and uh, the propaganda department then. Uh, turned its cult of personality toward Mao Zedong uh, in a way that dwarfed uh, what had been uh, done for Liu Shaoqi a few years earlier.
1: And this actually, um, this this period, this actually brings us into um, the the very last part of the book and this period in which you're describing um, the dethroning of Liu Shaoqi and the uh, replacement uh, by Mao, or the replacement of Mao as the figurehead with the uh, rise of the Red Guards, leads us in to um, just one phenomenon here that I, I can't let you go without asking you about. So before we conclude, um, it's the the way that the last two chapters of the book, as you lead us into this story of the you know, replacement of Leo, the emergence of Mao, and then um, the everything changing again as Mao's position as the unambiguous leader is later on um, also taken over by a different picture of the historiography of this period of revolution central to these phenomena as you show here are images are paintings are also architectural spaces um, as spaces of historiography and of history making. You've mentioned already um, very early on in our conversation this painting Chairman Mao Goes to An Yuan by um, Liu Chunhua who was a Red Guard. And this, um, this part of your story is a really wonderful place where we see a kind of history being made through the circulation, appropriation, and translation of images. So can you speak a little bit, um, before we conclude, to that aspect of the story in this last part of the book, the importance of paintings, of images, of exhibition spaces, as spaces for the retelling and the creation of um, different modes of history? Yes, you know, I think
0: these... um practices of these kinds of revolutionary images and uh, museum spaces, exhibition spaces, uh, uh, how they were set up and um, what messages they were trying to convey and so on, actually came very much out of a Soviet style of propaganda, um, but were conducted in such a way that again they made this revolution feel more Chinese. So the image of Mao that we see in this painting uh, Chairman Mao goes to Anyuan, is the image of Mao in his long scholar's gown um, holding an oiled paper umbrella um, that uh, in the Chinese accounts of this painting is supposedly a Hunan uh, made umbrella. Um, So Mao is coming from his native place of Hunan Striding into, uh, Anyan, the image of a young Chinese intellectual coming to sow the seeds of revolution among the proletariat. Um, the, uh, imagery, it's, it's really quite interesting. Interviews that were conducted, uh, by American art historians with the painter, um, Liu Chunhua suggest that, um, the inspiration for This painting uh, came in part from German Romanticism. Uh, In part, he suggests that it came from the paintings of Raphael, Italian Renaissance religious paintings of uh, the transfiguration of Christ and the Madonna and so forth. Um, So these are very Western-inspired notions of art, which also were some of uh, the... Uh, Western traditions that inspired Soviet propaganda art and yet being portrayed in a way that makes this somehow feel um, quite uh, Chinese. And um, so I do think these exhibition spaces, the building... Of new museums. It happens that this new Anyuan Museum, that was built uh, in 1968 during the height of the Cultural Revolution and originally was named the Memorial Hall to honor Chairman Mao's revolutionary activities in Anyuan, was built right in the space where a church, an Episcopal church, uh, had been uh, before the revolution the symbolism of a kind of new church, if you will, to Chairman Mao and to his revolution, replacing that old religious space and towering above the um, uh Workers Club that Liu Shaoqi had renovated, uh, located just below this massive hill on which the new museum was built. Uh, these uh, kinds of... Um, uh, Images, I think, and spatial representations... Are very powerful in the local area for signaling to people that um, there are new gods occupying these temples, and it's quite interesting the way in which um, locals refer to these uh, in religious terms. Talk about uh, Liu Shaoqi's temple being replaced by Chairman Mao's temple, and pilgrimages now pilgrims rather going to burn incense at the new uh, temple to Chairman Mao rather than the old one to um, to Liu So on the one hand, these have a very strong Western kind of um, origin, but on the other hand, they're um, saying to the locals, oh, there's a new uh, god in town, there's a new power, um, because uh, these spaces that uh, traditionally were occupied by different uh, religious traditions are now um, being occupied by a kind of communist religious tradition. So I think the iconography... Um, was very important uh, to um, allowing people to see uh, politics in a way that um, imbued it with a kind of sacred or religious uh, authority. I think that was true in the case of the Soviet Union as well. Scholars uh, of Soviet propaganda talk about how images of Stalin um, were very much built on uh, Western religious uh, art, how powerful the traditions of the Catholic Church were in influencing Soviet modes of uh, agitation propaganda. And... um, That, I think, becomes very important for um, the uh, Chinese uh, transmogrification of this, although in a way that becomes interpreted um, quite differently from the Soviet or Russian case.
1: Well, Liz, thank you so much. Um, We've taken up a lot of your time, and I don't want to take up too much more, but I do want to um, give you a chance, um, as we come to a conclusion, if there's anything else about the book um, that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out, especially for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read it, um, to, to say something about that. And I'll say, I'll say this for listeners, um, or I'll signal to listeners that this it's an extraordinarily rich book, and we didn't get to probably even 25% of the really fascinating stuff that's, that comes up in all of these chapters, but is there anything in particular you'd like to mention? Well, first of all, thank you for
0: your very generous remarks about the book. Um, there is one thing, I guess, that I would mention in conclusion, and that is that much of what concerned me uh, as I was writing the book was this question of what is a revolutionary tradition really for? Of course we here in the United States uh, also um, have a country that was born in revolution and in which the revolutionary tradition remains politically very salient uh, witness the Tea Party movement in recent years um, with um, it's name derived, of course, from the famous incident uh, in Boston Harbor that uh, helped to ignite the American Revolution and um, harking back to certain principles of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation and so forth. Um Uh, not too long ago, I had the opportunity to make a trip to Cuba. I was struck there with how much um, people there in Cuba also talked about their revolutionary tradition. When I asked them what their revolutionary tradition meant to them, I was very struck with the fact that almost everyone gave me virtually the same answer. They said their revolutionary tradition meant um, universal education and universal welfare, universal medical care. Here in the United States, um, I think if you ask, almost everyone uh, will give you a pretty similar answer. Our revolution means political freedom. It means the right to... believe what we want, um, religiously and uh, politically. It means the right to free speech. It means the right to individual uh, liberties. But I'm equally struck, when I ask this same question in China, nobody can tell me uh, what their revolutionary tradition means. Generally, although this term, um, is used constantly in communist propaganda, you know, people will shake their heads, smile, smile, um, Uh, or give me a sarcastic kind of answer, but hardly anyone. To the extent that people try to give an answer, they'll usually say, oh, our revolutionary tradition is violence. It's all about class struggle. That's our revolutionary tradition, and we need to forget it. But I think no country that actually is born in revolution can entirely forget their revolutionary tradition. And China, I believe, is no exception to that. And part of thinking through the Anyan story to me was, again, an occasion to think about how very, very complicated any revolutionary tradition is. It, uh, um, by definition, involves violence and bloodshed that has to be um, pacified uh, in some way in order to uh, have political stability afterwards. But on the other hand, that revolution was motivated by certain ideals, certain principles um, that also probably need to be remembered um, and clarified unless one is going to have um, unfortunate um, uh, um, uh, kind of unfortunate repetition of some of the least desirable and most violent aspects of that tradition. The Chinese Revolution is particularly complicated because it stretches back to the 1911 Revolution. It's full of bloodshed and violence. It has both urban and rural uh, wings uh, to it. Class struggle, of course, does become a central part of the communist revolution and the cultural revolution that followed it. But I also felt, going back to the Anyuan story, that there were some very important ideals to that revolution that involved dignity for the downtrodden, that that really was the message with which Lili San mobilized miners in the 1920s. It was that idea that These people were human, um, that they were not beasts of burden, they were not cattle and horses, um, they were men, they were people, and they had human dignity. um, And that's why they deserved to learn how to read and write, that's why they deserved uh, to learn how to stand up and make a political speech, that's why they deserved um, a revolution that would give them uh, new. Opportunities, Um, that sense of a revolutionary tradition, I think, has been somewhat lost and obfuscated uh, by all of um, these uh, historiographic changes that you referred to. And so my hope was not that I would be the one to uh, tell Chinese what their revolutionary tradition um, ought to consist of. Obviously, Chinese need to do that. But at least to draw some attention to these multiple readings of revolutionary traditions in any particular country and to bring attention to the importance um, of recovering a tradition in a way that allows people to move forward um, toward a politics um, that is worthy of all the sacrifices that people paid uh, in the violence and bloodshed of this revolutionary period. Um, so I think I would just end um, with uh, with those uh Those remarks. I I wrote this book, I must say, with a kind of Chinese as well as an American readership in mind. It is being translated into Chinese, and I don't know. uh, in what form it will be allowed to circulate in the PRC. If anything, it's that much more sensitive than Professor Yu Jianrong's wonderful book on An Yuan. Um, but, um, but I did write it, hoping to stimulate a conversation on the part of Chinese and, uh, and uh, Americans alike as we think about our revolutionary past and how we want to deal with that past going forward.
1: Well, thank you so much, Liz. And now that this book is out, my final question for you is, what's next for you? Are there any projects um, right now that are currently inspiring you?
0: Well, I'm engaged in a couple of Projects, um, one of which does come very much out of this Anyuan book, and that is a study of what I call cultural governance uh, in the PRC, the way in which the Department of Propaganda and the Ministry of Culture um, have used a whole variety of tools in order to make Chinese communism feel particularly Chinese. So that's one project that's going forward. The other one that's actually quite Different from this, um, but I guess in some respects has some connections as well, is, is a study, a uh, kind of comparative study of uh, higher education in China and different models of higher education, looking um, first at the Republican period. And um, I've been focusing especially on a couple of uh, very influential American universities in China in the Republican period, St. John's University, where my own parents taught, and Yanjing University, with which the Harvard Yanjing Institute that I currently direct was very closely associated, um, studying them as models of very different kinds of global education in the early 20th century and trying to connect that up um, to the experiments in global education that we see going on in contemporary China as China... Uh, is putting uh, huge uh, resources and manpower into trying to rethink its educational system and figure out how it can have an education for the 21st century that nevertheless will be an education that the party hopes, of course, won't rock the boat uh, too, too seriously. So those are the two areas uh, in which I'm currently uh, working, both of which have some connection, certainly, um, to this earlier work, but uh, I hope will take me in somewhat new directions as well.
1: Well, that sounds great, and best of luck with those projects, and thank you again for uh, joining us today.
0: Thank you very much, Carla.
1: You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.